I'm so glad to be with here to, with you guys tonight, and I want to take a few moments just to talk about the significance of Christmas. How many of you are familiar with the classic Christmas story that's now been depicted in several movies called A Christmas Carol? How many of you have seen one or more versions of that or read the book? Okay. You might remember Scrooge and the three ghosts that turned his ice-cold, graceless heart into one of compassion. Do you remember the name of those three ghosts? I asked you this a couple weeks ago, so you guys have already heard it once. What are the names of those three ghosts? Past, present, and future. That's right. And over the last couple weeks, we've talked about the birth of Christ and its monumental impact on our life through the lens of its impact on our past, present, and future. Two weeks ago, we explored how Jesus has saved us from our sins, that he offers salvation uh, in such a way that intimacy with him is, is possible because of his finished work on the cross and not because our ability to keep a list of rules, which are impossible for us to keep according to God's standards anyway. Then last week, we talked about uh, the fact that the incarnation, that is God come in the flesh through Christ, how it impacts our present condition. That because God came in the flesh as fully man in Christ, Jesus was fully man, so he's able to empathize with our struggles. And because he's fully God, we know that he leads us in triumph and victory over those struggles. Now this week, we take a few minutes to look at Christmas future. That is how the incarnation gives us hope for what is yet to come. To make this point, I want to take a quick trip through redemptive history. That is, I want to look at... Uh, God's story and the way that he has dealt with us humans so that we can look towards the hopeful future we have in that context. So first, a bird's eye view, and then we'll get into a little more detail. So the bird's eye view is this. You see, Jesus is fully human and fully God right now, and that was made possible through his first coming when he came as a baby. Through his brief earthly ministry, several thousand years ago now, he laid out his mission, which was to prepare for his second coming. That is, Jesus is coming back for his people. Salvation future that's yet to happen. So with that bird's eye view, let's dig in a little bit deeper into God's plan, his story that we celebrate at Christmas. Like all major campaigns... There are phases where one builds on the one previous. In each phase I'll describe in a moment tonight, it's right from the Bible, but I don't have time to go to all the references. I'll go to some, again, just for time's sake, because we're going to be spending a lot of time uh, just having fun and enjoying one another tonight. But a verse that summarizes his mission that we read a lot at Christmas is a prophecy given hundreds of years before the birth of Christ through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, and we celebrate that at Christmas because the best gift that God can give us is himself. It's not health, it's not wealth, it's not awesome friendships or a great family. It is himself. That's why he came to be with us, to remove all obstacles of this great gift he can give us. The author of life, the author of peace, the author of love gives us himself. So we call his mission, Mission Emmanuel. The first phase of God's mission is God alone. Most of us here know that 
uh, everything but God was created. So long, long time ago, nothing else existed except God. He was alone, but he wasn't by himself in the way that we normally think of loneliness because he existed in community because God is in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So God is not lonely. God's not incomplete. He's complete and full of joy and full of peace and happy in and of himself in three persons. But because he is generous and compassionate, he wants to share of himself. So that moves us to the second phase, the second phase of God's mission, God and angels. So the angelic beings were created by God to give him glory. That was, is their, their uh, only purpose. But this is where the wrinkle in this story develops, in God's story. A great revolt occurred among many of the angels. But even this was part of a mission, Emmanuel. The third phase of God's mission, the dawn of evil. Lucifer, uh, Satan, was the most beautiful of angels. And for an untold reason, this beauty went to his head. And he, like the Michigan Wolverines, thought that he could mount a victory against a superior force. Not the Buckeyes in this case, not Rocky, but God and his heavenly army. Like Michigan, he lost and lost big. Even bigger, believe it or not. You see, Lucifer wanted something other than God's greatest gift, which again, we've said is himself. And so Lucifer persuaded a sizable group of lesser angels to revolt with him and to try to find a better life apart from God. And that's sin in a nutshell, trying to find a better life apart from God. It can be bad things that we're all very aware of, like infidelity, uh, uh, like various addictions, substance abuse, you name it. Or it can be good things like family, friends, children, job, just to name a few. In Lucifer's case, he wanted power. And now Satan and his demons were a force to be reckoned with who were setting themselves against God. So now we go to the fourth phase of God's mission, people. God created the heavens and the earth, and on the earth, he created a special place for his first people called Eden, and Eden's a word that means delight. In this paradise, this delight, God created the first people, Adam and Eve, and his purpose was to share the delight of his community, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with them. They had it all. I mean, God actually walked with them physically in the garden. They didn't just have the ability to love, they had the author of love. They didn't just have the feeling of joy that we get at a wedding or a party like this one, they had the author of joy. It was fullness. They had it all. You see, we humans were formed with a tremendous capacity, not just to bow in awe of God and not just to serve him, but to share and enjoy the very depths of God's heart, where there's no lacking, where we're full to be in an intimate, life-giving relationship with God. And that's what makes us different than the angels. We're different than the angels in that we can experience God's grace. God's love gives birth to angels, or to grace. He finds a way to forgive those who hate them and not just forgive, but to truly love those who've rebelled against him that he calls to himself. And that's every human who's ever lived. We've all rebelled except for Jesus. So Adam and Eve sinned. They chose their own way instead of God, just like we have. 
But God used even this act of treason against himself to continue the Emmanuel mission. You see, Adam and Eve had a limited appreciation for God's goodness because God's grace was not yet required. So it wasn't as visible. They had paradise, but there was one thing they couldn't enjoy in that context, a relationship built on grace. So God stood by and watched as Satan and evil persuaded them to sin. So the fifth phase of God's mission, the deadly human virus called sin. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, they released a deadly virus into the human heart. Remember, up until this point, sin was reserved just for the fallen angels. But now, from then on, every person who's ever been born has been infected by this deadly spiritual virus that separates us from God. Sin separates us from Mission Emmanuel, God with us, his number one goal for us to esteem him above his gifts, above every other good thing and bad thing in existence, to delight in him. Sin causes all humanity to naturally think there's something better than God that's worth pursuing. We, because of sin, believe that we can find more pleasure in God's provision than his person. So we all want to live for some sort of pleasure other than God. It can even be going to church. It can even be religion. The sense of a moral compass and a sense of accomplishment you get in religious acts. So when those pleasures didn't come to God's people in the past... They felt justified seeking relief for that pain any way they could. And we, of course, do the same. And when God told his people throughout redemptive history, as recorded in the Bible, that they were wrong, they would become furious and ask what we often ask in the face of struggle. God, what have you ever done for me? They and us feel that somehow we deserve his blessing. We felt like God put us here and shouldn't our creator take care of us the way we think he should take care of us? But if you read redemptive history from the first book, that's Genesis on, you'll see that people then and today just want God to take care of us, to do our bidding. We really don't want God. We don't want the hassle of living God's way. We want all the good stuff he can provide except for the best thing he can provide for us, which is himself. Most of us, if really pressed, would rather have the blessing of a happy family or children or romance or success or happiness more than we want Jesus. It's human nature. So God moved to make the Emmanuel mission more visible. The sixth phase of God's mission, God takes action. And this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. God's story gets a little uncomfortable at this point. You see, God created a perfect place and a perfect relationship for Adam and Eve, but they blew it. The generations that followed Adam and Eve were getting worse and worse because of the disease of wanting other things over God called sin. It got so bad that God destroyed everybody except for one man and his family, and he destroyed humanity through a flood. This man's name was Noah. And after the flood, God entered into an agreement with Noah. God said, look up. Do you see this rainbow? This rainbow is the pledge that even though you and your kids and their kids and their kids and their kids after them will turn away from me to find their joy, I will never destroy all living creatures just as I did. Why do you think God made this promise? I believe he was revealing that his judgment by itself would never achieve the Emmanuel mission. That is, God could never punish people into treasuring him above all other delights. So the first promise called the Noahic Covenant was the first of five special promises between God and his people. And you'll see how these connect 
to the incarnation in just a few moments. So hundreds of years pass. Keep in mind that we're still many years removed from the birth of Christ at this point. And another of these promises or covenants was revealed called the Abrahamic covenant. God chose a man named Abraham and ordered him to join him on a journey with very limited information. All he said to Abraham was, follow me to a place I'll show you later. I have a plan. I want to bless people through you. That was God's plan. Abraham had barely a clue as to what God was talking about, but he followed. He fell a lot, but he followed God, leaving all the familiar behind. God then appears to do something cruel to Abraham that was actually very loving. God says to Abraham, you'll father a son. And Abraham responds accordingly, but God, my wife and I are childless and way beyond childbearing years. There was even a little snickering. They were so shocked by God's promise. And God says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. You'll not only have a son to continue your heritage, but you will have nations of my people that will come from you. Then God allowed some painful time to pass where Abraham was wondering when and how this impossible promise would come to fruition. And here's where it gets a little weird. God instructs Abraham to tear some animals and birds into pieces and lay the pieces into two lines forming a path down the middle. This would have been terrifying, by the way. Uh, Absolutely terrifying, I'm sure. The custom of the day in covenant making was that whoever walked the path was in essence saying, cut me into pieces if I don't keep my word. And if you read God's story yourself, you'll read that God walked the path alone. He didn't ask Abraham to walk it. As if to say, the Emmanuel mission, God with us, is moving forward, but I can't count on you to have it in your heart to delight in me. I can't really be in and among you unless I guarantee this mission all the way to its victory and fulfillment by myself. Because remember, God envisioned a people that draw near to him no matter what happens in life because they believe he is better than all things, even the blessings that he can give. So some time passed, and finally, Isaac is born to Sarah and Abraham when they were 90 and 100 years old, respectively. And all succeeding generations were now the children of Israel. God was fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. So God then, uh, sometime later, brings his children, his people, out of Egypt, and he tells them to sit in front of a mountain. And they are to hear uh, the next promise, the next covenant that God would make with his people, and we call it the Mosaic Covenant. Here's what God says. It's my summary. You can read it in the actual Bible. But God tells Moses to pass this promise to the people. He says to them, here's the way things will now work. I intend to be the God of a people who will want nothing else more than they want me. If that's your heart, here's how you'll live. Do everything I say. Prove to me you love me above everything else, and I'll see to it that your life works well. You do what I want, and I'll provide the blessings you want. That's the arrangement. Sounds good, right? Sounds fair? Sounds equitable? Here's the problem. No one kept it. Not one person. and No one ever has or will. No one keeps the terms that God sets. God's people wanted a better life for themselves more than they wanted to enjoy a relationship with God himself. So God's people were stuck in selfishness, seeking the protection of pleasure rather than seeking intimacy with God. They were looking to temporarily numb the painful effects of their sin sickness. So God brought trouble into their lives to get their attention. A lot of trouble. And if you read God's story in the Old Testament, that was the way he handled his interactions with his kids. 
they would wander away from him and he would allow painful consequences to come in their life and they would come back for about five minutes and then they would rebel again. Here's the key. The only solution was for God to place a love for him and a delight in him into the hearts of his people that was more powerful than sin. God had to do the work without human assistance because we simply couldn't keep our end of the bargain. All the phases of the Emmanuel mission up until this point were to show people that they couldn't love God, that they couldn't want God's stuff or other things less than they wanted God. Sin would win every single time, and it always has. But before God made his ultimate move of placing this love and delight into the hearts of his people, he had one more piece of business left, one more promise. This one is called the Davidic Covenant. He made it with the same guy who defeated Goliath when he was just a shepherd boy, David, who went on to become the king of all of Israel. So now we're hundreds of years later, both after the Mosaic Covenant, but before the birth of Christ. And God says to David, I'm going to, and then this is a summary. You can read it in the Bible. It's my summary of, of many, many chapters and verses. I'll set up a throne in the middle of my people and see to it that my man occupies it. I intend to create a community that dances for joy around my throne in my city with my man in complete charge. You, David, are a picture of that man. Your kingdom will last forever. So we know that David was a foreshadowing of Jesus and his kingdom that he will one day establish again on this earth. So that moves us to the seventh phase of God's mission, the life and ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came as a baby. He grew into a man and died. He came to serve and die in our place. He paid the ransom for us that we might be free from sin. And that ransom was his life, his life for ours. As Kimball, our other pastor, mentioned last week, and as we remember every week, Jesus suffered physically in the flesh in our place, taking what we deserved so that we can get what we don't deserve, which is the righteousness of Christ and the relationship with God that Jesus enjoys so that when God sees us, he sees his son. Like the people in Noah's day, he was destroyed to eradicate our sin sickness. And like the rainbow, his resurrection promises a better way and a brighter future of peace with him. Like Abraham, he's the descendant from whom the whole world will be blessed. And all those who know and love Jesus are his children and agents of blessing in the world, bringing the peace and life of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He's the embodiment of the law that came through Moses, and Jesus has written this law on our hearts through the Holy Spirit who indwells Christ's followers. The Spirit gives us an appetite for holiness versus just wanting to do good stuff for God so he'll give us good stuff in return. We want to obey to have a sweeter fellowship with God, not obey so that we can have sweeter stuff from him. The kingdom promised to David is now present. Christ is already on his throne, and we already reign with him, though yet not yet as we will ultimately when he comes back to restore all things. The final stage of the Emmanuel mission is now in place. God has established a new arrangement with his people. In this new covenant, cut in Jesus' blood, shed for us on the cross, he became our sin and in turn became the cure for it when he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. 
We now have direct access to God at any time and in all circumstances. We now have Emmanuel, God with us. And this new arrangement is eternal. It cannot be broken, but it's not the last phase. There's one more yet to come. The eighth phase of God's mission, the restoration of all things. God will restore and renew the earth one day to how it was before Adam and Eve sinned. It will be Eden, delight, once again. You see, after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and another promise was given to his disciples. It's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. It says, they, that's the disciples, were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly, two men dressed in white, angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Make no mistake, Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us. And he will fulfill his promise and will return one day physically. He came the first time as both God and man, and he'll come the second time as both God and man. He's coming back. All other promises that we've referenced in redemptive history all find fulfillment in his second coming. The last book of the Bible speaks the most about the second coming of Christ. And the author of Revelation received a uh, divine vision where he provides us with a picture of what his second coming will look like. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, the author says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So what started with the perfect world created by a perfect God with a perfect relationship with him, sin sought to destroy and ruin. And God has been at work restoring all things since then. He's not twiddling his thumbs. All the promises he made, all the phases of his mission were to show us one simple thing, and that's this. Our purpose in life, our one purpose in life, we are missing the point of life if we don't do this. Literally, our lives are purposeless, aimless, of little value. Our purpose in life is to know, love, and delight in him above all else forever. The main message of the Bible is not we are to be moral so that God will give us heaven. The main message of life is as long as we don't cheat on our spouse or murder anyone and pay our income tax, all things are going to be good. The main message of life isn't as long as we compare well with other people morally, we're okay in God's eyes and the scales will be balanced. The main message of life is our main objective, our main purpose to find true fulfillment is to know, love, and delight in him above all else forever. We can't do that. But he'll restore our hearts in him if we'll call to him. And if we call to him, he'll invite us to be part of his restoration plan. Well, he will restore all things starting now and finally and forever in the future when he returns. He does the work, but we get to, long, we get to come alongside him. And one day when we see him face to face, we will no longer battle with where our delight and pleasure 
is found. And we will no longer numb ourselves with sin because we'll be with the giver of life, the giver of joy. So when we remember the first incarnation, we also remember he's coming back. He's coming back. And he came into all of our garbage, all of our misery. His, uh, there wasn't even a hotel room for him. He had to, to, to sleep where the animals lay. He was marginalized from the very beginning, going into the very gutters of human existence to relate to all of our struggles, all of our trials, all of our pain, and grab us and bring us into victory with him. All the way to when we see him face to face. Isn't that going to be awesome? He's got a wonderful plan. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Merry Christmas.